You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. back with more digital noise joining me this week is john golson dr john golson how are you i'm fine doctor doctor do you do you concur i concur doctor <laughs> sorry you've gone from sir to doctor i feel like that's actually a demotion that's what two years of reading about medical science will do to you <laughs> give you a degree well you know i didn't go to college for, like to study to be a doctor but i did my research online mm-hmm. so i feel like that qualifies me Yep, I do all my research online. <laughs> Every single bit of it. That sh- have you watched that show, Resident Alien? Uh, no, I read the comics, but I didn't see the oh, show. I didn't even know it was based on a comic, but it's kind of amusing that, like, because he comes in, takes the body of a guy that he doesn't even know is a doctor, and then the doctor in the town is murdered, and they're like, we need a doctor. So he's always like, what's your problem? Okay, hold on one second, and he Googles it. <laughs> and yet somehow still manages to yep. not kill anyone. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> I've gotten to where I don't diagnose my anything like that's happening to me online because you'll find like wildly contradicting information and they tend to be filled with you know worst case scenarios yeah you're just like oh you have a slight itch behind your left ear well you have a giant brain tumor well a great example was keto like people going like oh you lose so much weight on keto you lose so much weight and you do lose weight on keto but i have gout and Mm -hmm. so i was like is key, I don't even think you can do keto when you're on gout because you're not supposed to eat fatty foods and you're not uh-huh. supposed to have red meat. And keto is yeah. like all red meat and butter. Yeah, you can't do that. And so I was like, well, let me see if keto is okay for gout. And an article after, keto is wonderful for gout because you lose weight. and you Are you and serious? That, and it's great for gout. And it, there's so many keto diets that are great for gout. You just have to keep an eye on X, Y, and Z. I went to my rheumatologist and I said, I ordered a keto book because I, I would like to lose a little bit of weight, but it just... There's, it doesn't seem like it would be good for gout, but I'm finding articles online that say that like keto is good for gout. And he laughed out loud <laughs> and was like, no, keto's terrible. It's, it's terrible al- for it's gout. It's almost as if there were companies out there selling products that would profit from as many people as possible getting into trying their diets. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that. It's mm-hmm. the same thing I tell anyone who's like, well, I don't choose to believe in the commercial medicines. I use alternative medicines because there's no uh, profit. I'm like, oh, honey, you are a sweet summer child. Holy shit. If you believe there's no giant profit to be made off, quote, alternative medicine. Yeah. Because <laughs> there is. Anyway, uh, yeah, there's any number of doctors out there who are like not doctors or they're like, I'm a doctor of philosophy. But on my side, it just says doctor that's hawking products like none of those harmful gmos and organic stuff that we promise will cure your rheumatoid arthritis or brain cancer like no 
Anyway, sorry, I can get off my soapbox for a minute. That's fine if you want to experiment with those things. Just don't pay top dollar is all I'm saying. Right. Anyway, we're going to review movies. That's what we're here to do. We review movies and we have a TV show this week. Oh, yay. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. That sounds like a warning yay, if I ever heard one. I'll be curious to hear what you have to say about the television show. But Mm. we're going to start off with movies and we're going to go way back for this one. We're going to go way back to the 70s. With Arrow's release of Giallo Essentials. Now, it was kind of cool that I got sick because Arrow almost never sends me like the actual real editions of stuff. I just get the cut out white critic discs that just say this is what it is. But they sent me the full, like, you know, the box. The white critics? <laughs> no, the discs are white colored. <laughs> I, I don't think black critics get black cut out discs. I don't know. Maybe they do. That'd be weird. But uh, so I got sent this and. Uh, I was like, yay, it's got three Giallo films in it, one of which uh, I'd seen, but the other two I hadn't. And then I found out they they put out two of these sets. There's a red Giallo Essentials that came out at the same time I didn't get sent. And now I'm all like looking at gift tours in the mouth about it. Like, God damn it, Arrow, why didn't you send me the red set too? Do do you not love me anymore? I mean, they sent me Shaw Scope Volume 1, so I'm not bitching. Oh, nice. Yeah. But Giallo Essentials, uh, all I can talk about are the three movies in this set. I'm not going to talk about the three in the other set because you didn't send them to me, Arrow. (laughs) Giallo, if you don't know, is, which I can't imagine, that it's so much part of the conversation lately with movies that incorporate aspects of it that came out last year, even specifically, like Last Night in Soho, and what was the one that was on HBO? The, every, the, there was the one Malignant, that, Malignant. Every, that, that James Wan said was his tribute to Giallo, which never struck me as particularly Giallo, I mean, but that was me. Giallo elements to it, but like to call it a tribute was like... Really? I thought it was closer to like the Gonzo stuff from the 80s. Like Frank Henlotter. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But, you know, I mean, I guess there's aspects. And when you watch the Blu-ray, there's a specific feature on there. that's just like, look, that's kind of vaguely Giallo-ish. I'm like, okay. Somebody has gloves on or something. (laughs) I guess there are like more people know what Giallo is than Frank Henlotter. (laughs) We'll just pursue that. There's not, yeah, there's not two Henlotter box sets. There's there's two Giallo box sets. Well, this comes with three movies. What have they done to your daughters, torso, and strip nude for your killer? And I'd like to say that overall, I actually enjoyed the first two. I thought the first one, what they, uh, what have they done to your daughters was the best. Oh, Uh, hey, me too. Okay. Um, all three of them are definitely fall into the the more like tits and killing uh, side of Giallo because not all Giallo is that way. A lot of it isn't at all. But this this is like those like you could tell they were being made to some degree to sell to like drive in yeah. theater audiences, which especially in the case of Torso, they were quite successful with. So there's a lot more nudity and sex in these. Uh, but Strip Nude for Your Killer is like, if the first two are horror movies with a lot of nudity, that's a nudity movie with a little bit of horror. <laughs> yeah, that was my least favorite of the three, was Strip Nude for Your Killer. And just not crazy. I mean, I was even to points, I just getting bored and having trouble focusing on what was happening because it just was so uninteresting in the story here. But it's funny, what have they done to your daughters is actually part of what they call the Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy, uh, which is... Never was never actually finished because the director in question died before he could finish his trilogy. But the uh, the primary is Massimo Dalamano. I don't know if I'm saying that absolutely correct, but um, I believe the first one. What, oh yeah, what have you done to Solange? Which uh, I was sent by one of the guys from Arrow a while ago, just as a 
I had mentioned online, like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't see it. I always wanted to see that one. And he just sent me an older copy oh, nice. they had, uh, which is excellent as well. So if you like this one, I think that one is better. But it, it, this is, you know, they're not, they're thematic connected, not, you know, in storyline or anything like that. Uh, but you know, the story, it, it, you know, follows high school girls getting killed, basically. Police officers investigating the death of a woman who's rather brutally found you know, and when they find her found uh, hanging, I mean, it's a dummy, but like they, it's they're pretty graphic about this naked 14 year old hanging there. Different rules in Italy. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I mean, to be fair, when they flash back, the actress playing her is decidedly not 14 years <laughs> old. Um, but, you know, it, it looks like suicide, but they're like, OK, well, it's not. It's a murder. Uh, and it looks like there's the police are uncovering a group of. Uh, a, a pedophile ring, basically, of people who like find teenage girls in high school and you know pay them to come have sex with much older dudes, and basically comes down to someone's going to talk, and so bodies are dropping, and so it's much more of a Pulitzer than it is even a horror film. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought pretty entertaining. I thought this had a great score. Holy crap! Oh yeah, I liked the score the most of the of the three as well. I actually found the score on some of them pretty. Uh, not <laughs> the score for Strip Nude for Your Killer in particular was pretty rough, and I guess that the, that's the kind of score that people like spend Buku's money to buy on vinyl and things like that and fancy reissues. But this one, I I did dig the music. It was very um straightforward, just kind of a a cop movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was propulsive. Uh, it also had a uh, a little bit of like a after school special kind of cautionary tale thing going on like uh you know hey young women of italy watch out for creepy guys mm-hmm. i guess it's really the message <laughs> right um it's very very weak uh you know it's it's not delivered in the strongest way it feels like it's it feels almost like and i didn't watch the special features but like a trade-off obligation for uh like hey <laughs> no no we get that this might be morally questionable but we're gonna put this thing at the end that says how many people are abducted a year and you know, that sort of thing is I, I liked the, I liked this one the most and I was ready to give up on this box to be completely honest after. Did you watch, you didn't watch this one first then? No, I watched watched this one one last. Oh, okay. Well, I watched this one last, uh, but I, I, I was sandwiched between, um, strip nude for your killer. So torso was first. Okay. That was the one I'd heard of. Torso is, you know, (laughs) yeah. And then Strip Nude for Your Killer. The Strip Nude for Your Killer is the one about the fashion models, where somebody's killing the fashion models. Is that uh, Strip Nude? Um, or is that Torso? Uh, yeah, I believe that's Strip... Yeah, that's Strip Nude. That's Strip Nude. Yeah. Somebody's killing the fashion models, and uh, yeah, there's a guy with a motorcycle helmet. There's a, per- a killer with a motorcycle helmet on that's killing off fashion models one by it's one. Like, who's killing and, the fashion models? Yeah, and fashion models, and I think a detective <laughs> are sort of like trying to uncover who it is that's targeting these models. Um, it was, it was, uh, had lots of slow, um, European soft cores. <laughs> yeah. I like, mean, and it really, people really rub and rub lips on each other and I mean, rub it really their bodies. Feels like and, the cliched soft core porn film of the seventies. And, and some of it's just like not even leading up to a killing. It's just like, well, here's the scene where this couple has sex. Yeah. And, and music's so, <laughs> music's so wrong for the moment that it almost removes any trace elements of erotica that could be found in this other than just like, Oh, Hey, nudity. It's sort of like, 
it's it's sort of like not even not even mining anything uh, sexy because you have like carnival music in the background, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I mean, I guess there are people who specifically chase after like classic erotica, and mm-hmm. this is going to be more there for them than it is for people chasing after classic giallo. It's a weird choice to put in the set. The only reason I can think they included it is because there is as much nudity in it as the other two. It just doesn't have much else to offer. Whereas Torso is the one that is the most decidedly a horror film that's into it with a killer who is just cutting up bodies with lots of clo- motion, close-up kills. And it's it's pretty grody, no question. And you can see why it was a big drive-in hit when it came out originally. Yeah, kind of a proto-slasher. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah, and I guess that's what giallos are in general. But, um, but yeah, very. Uh, you can see the DNA of of what became the slasher in it really clearly. I thought this one was arguably the the best made, even though it wasn't my favorite one. I thought this one had a had torso? a grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought torso had a grasp of filmmaking fundamentals. Um, that was just it was way more sure footed. It was directed better. What well, has put this together better? Odd thing that it does in the third act, where it's just like most movies would be like kind of more the slow stalk and kill, and it starts that way, and then there's a big lag in the middle, and you meet all the girls or friends, they're like, "Let's go for no reason." I was ever clear on to this house up in the mountains and just hang out and drink wine, and the one girl's like, "Okay, well, who shows up late? I'm going to bed," and she wakes up and everyone is dead already. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> How did that? That's not usual in these type of movies. Uh, but you know, I, I enjoyed the first two in this set for sure. I think Torso is probably the best made, but it gets, like I said, pretty grody, pretty heavy. Um, it's considered by some to be a classic of the genre. I'd call it a minor classic at best. Yeah, yeah. All three of these are because I, I even know defenders of Strip Nude for Your Killer. I know people that love that movie. Oh, me too. Me too. Um, but these all did three strike me as slightly lesser giallo. And but I'm an ignoramus. I mean, oh. what do I know about giallo? <laughs> these, I just felt like these three were like, okay, this is not, this is like the cult movies within the cult of giallo. Right. Uh, right. There are people who like giallo, and then there are those weirdos who really like yeah. giallo. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to go that far, but like, I, I did. You know, at least I watch, I could see myself watching the first two in the set again. I couldn't see myself watching Strip Nude for your killer. Oh, I do want to point out in terms of bonus features, and there's lots of bonus features throughout this, including a Cat Ellinger, who's often on these Arrow releases, talking about all of them. But uh, the first one, uh, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, has got the weirdest bonus feature. Oh, man. There's a triple X porn bonus feature. I felt so weird about watching that because of the way that they provide the context they provide for it struck me as so odd because they were like here's hardcore material that was shot for the film and never used and then they just show that to you so they show these two people having sex and i and there was something about it like i felt like i was watching somebody's like dirty home movie because Because of the fact that it was for a film, but then wasn't used in that film, it doesn't feel like that means it's for my eyes. But it made me go as well. If you shot some porn and you decided not to use the porn, why why are you showing me that? No. (laughs) And also it begs the question, like, who is actually having sex on film sets? Yeah, it wasn't. And they are here. They are, no question, actually having sex. And you're like, what? So... It kind of makes you reconsider a lot of things with the tie in more movies. <laughs> like, oh, is this across the board a thing that I should have known by now? Holy shit. 
Yeah, very strange. Uh, very strange inclusion. Um, you know, there's there's a plethora of ways to watch these films as well. I know. Um, is it, I believe it's Torso that has. You can watch it in Italian, or you can watch it in English, or you can watch a full cut, or you can watch a par- partial cut, or you can watch it with the opening. Um, well, well, with strip nude. There's a strip as well. nude is the one with the opening blue tint. I thought it was torso. Oh, uh, no, well, tent. I'm saying they both have Italian yeah. or English they both versions. Have, they yeah. both have Italian and English versions. There's there's longer cuts, shorter cuts. There's one that has <laughs> a particularly graphic scene that opens the film tinted blue, so the blood doesn't offend you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's all kinds of ways to watch these as well within the set. Well, that's uh, that's the set. I don't tell you. You already know if this interests you or not. It's. I'm glad I got it. I was excited to get it, and I was excited to see these. I even I'd seen Torso before, and I think I liked it better the second time, uh, partially because it genuinely and a lot of these don't always had some real surprises in it. And I was like, yeah. oh, there's some some neat different stuff here. And again, what have they done for your, uh, to your daughters? Just has a score that's so catchy it doesn't even belong in this film. <laughs> You're like, this score is better than the movie is. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to a more recent release which is a film called and I, I i'm sure i'm saying this wrong row it's just spelled r-o-h and it was malaysia's official oscar entry for 2021 and all too rare for oscar entries it's in fact a horror film from writer director amir Ezwan, uh which is valza's family uh well a mother and her two children who live in a like a bamboo hut in the middle of a bamboo forest in malaysia uh who have this little girl sort of shows up in their life and then they find out that maybe she's sort of like a cursed creature of some sort and has laid a curse upon them that something is going to come for them. And I mean, it's one of those films, like it's, it's not going for jump scares or anything like that. It's going for a slow creep building to like an extreme thing at the end. And then it's also kind of based on folk tales and a lot of cultural memes that I'm, I don't know anything about Malaysia's like horror, folk horror history or anything like that. So I couldn't say I found this scary per se, but it was interesting. I like watching horror films from other cultures quite a bit and seeing what they consider to be frightening. I've told you before when I was in Tokyo, I went to an actual Japanese haunted house that was totally immersed in Japanese horror folk horror. Oh, yeah. So it was like you were you were running from the fox with nine tails and stuff. And it was like, whoa, this is so cool. No one would find this scary from America at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I liked this. This was well made. Um, it was atmospheric. It was moody. It doesn't really quite build to anything. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. It doesn't like have a huge um payoff for how subdued a horror film it is. Right. Um, but it's pretty good. Like it's it just well rounded. Like a pretty good little like uh you know well acted. It feels authentic. The acting feels authentic. Um, and again, uh, you know, you get a lot of atmosphere and that's about it, Yeah, but and it works. It's definitely chasing more the art crowd than it is chasing the horror crowd, even though I'd say it's decidedly a horror film. It's just, I think it's going to be more interest to the, the more art crowd for sure. I mean, I think film movement is even the people who put it out, which that's much more up their alley anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. I thought the the, the last 20 minutes or so got a little silly, felt like, there's some moments that feel like it's about to start going into wuxia stuff, you yeah. know, <laughs> but it never does. But it has that sort of like, oh, somebody's actually this other person. And now they're probably going to like shoot their fingernails out at people. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I 
it's fine. I would have liked it better seeing it in a theater with an audience, I think, where yeah. I could just, you know, I had no distractions, sitting in a dark room, let it creep over me. So if you're going to watch Row, which is Malaysian for soul, um, d- try to do that. Turn all the lights off. Get rid of your distractions. You, you have to be fully immersed in it. You, if you try and casually watch it, you're just going to get bored. Yeah. Is, is my feeling about it. But let's move on to our next one, which is Disciples of Shaolin. Man, John, I have talked about so many martial arts films in the past week. Because uh, not only did we have that Shaw Scope 12 movie set on the last show, but we also talked about the Once Upon a Time in China six movie set. So I've been watching a lot of Shaw Brothers era type films. And, you know, I mean, those aren't Once Upon a Time in China. It's a little bit later, but still, you get my meaning. And this is another one of those movies. And I was not displeased, actually. I saw this before I saw the Shaw Brothers set, to be fair. And there's some things that I didn't really know until I had... uh watched that set and watched some of the extras about this. Most notably, the, the star here, Alexander Fu Sheng, who is just one of the most charismatic actors from the whole Shaw Brothers period. You go, when you, I by the time I was halfway through the Shaw Brothers set, I had watched like four of his movies counting this one. I was like, who is this guy? What happened to him? I mean, he clearly is a major star, like really good at the physical stuff, but also one of the first guys ever to do funny stuff yeah. in these movies. And one of the first guys ever to kind of, rather than play the Wong Fei Hung, very serious, all moral character, to play a character that was like kind of more of a roguish Han Solo-ish type, you know, he's like kind of out for himself, but reluctantly finds his way to righteousness. Um and he died at 28 in a car accident. Oh. He was being set up for basically what Jackie Chan ended up being, yeah. you know, because he was him and a uh, choreographer, Lau Kar Lung, uh, who kind of said, well, at this point, I feel like what needs to do to something that Bruce Lee didn't do is experiment with comedy. So he kind of, with the films he was directing and choreographing uh and kind of invented Kung Fu martial arts comedy movies. And I think he even directed Drunken Master with the the one usually held up as like the first major release of that. But Alexander Fusheng predated Chan with doing the same sort of stuff with a lot more of playing with props and things. Uh, Disciples of Shaolin is indeed one of those that like, okay, there is a decent amount of playing. He's playing like the, you know, the guy is kind of a jerk, but he's a lovable jerk. (laughs) Right. Um, but he's also a super badass and he finds out that his brother, you know, brother, I think in terms of good friend, um, works at this textile factory, uh, that's being threatened by people from another textile factory. And, uh, so there's a gang war going on and he's like, I'll get involved in this. And quickly he is pretty much everyone's like, you're a hero. Wow. What a bad was like, Oh my God, I want to be your best friend. And even the manager of the, the business, you know, the, the, the brother works for it first. Like, get the fuck out of here, kid. It's like, okay, I guess you're my boss now. <laughs> Kowtowing to him. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun in, in this. I really enjoyed this quite a bit. And this is from, uh, Oh God, 88 films, which is a recent entry and re-releasing martial arts stuff on Blu-ray. They did that Chinese boxer, which we reviewed mm. before. And I think they put out another solid release with this one. It looks really good. They did a great job making it look great. I haven't seen, you know, Kung Fu films off of UHF television <laughs> in comparison to these. It's just a it, massive difference. It looks great. I thought the movie is kind of middle of the road. I did like the lead actor in it. Um, and I liked his sort of like a very unique energy to him. Yeah. It's, it is. He has a natural. He feels naturally funny, even when he's being serious. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know. It it brings a weird. It it brings a a a flavor I wasn't used to. Yeah, um, he, he's not just charismatic with his performance, but he has a kind of a he just he has a, a unusual, slightly unusual yeah. face. I was so trying to think of like somebody that I could compare him to nowadays, and I can't really think of anybody. I mean, it is sort of the template for what became the Jackie Chan movies, but just in regards to his comedic personality, is sort of like. Um, I don't know. He's he's plausible as an action lead, but also still kind of cartoonish. He's fun. Uh, movie's okay. Um, <laughs> I thought the fights were kind of weak. Kind hmm. of like a lot of the fights were sort of people like moving around each other while the sound effects were going crazy. Um, I wasn't really yeah, I wasn't really impressed by that. But I liked the I liked the world of it, and I liked the actors in it, and I liked the way the film looked. So I liked a lot of the the trappings around it, but ultimately you watch a kung fu movie partially. I mean, for the kung fu, yeah. And I just found the fights in this like really, really weak. I think if they were just a smidge better, this this would I, I would have liked it more. Yeah, okay, I'll have to loan you my Shawscope set. That's really kind of a these are the best ones. Yeah, <laughs> you know, with the exception of the ones everybody knows. Like it doesn't have eight diagram pole fighter in there or a few of the others, but you're like. The, pretty much everything in there. You're like, these are the ones when people go, the best Shaw, uh, Shaw Brothers films. These are the ones they're talking about. Uh, this comes with audio commentary with Sam Dan, audio commentary with Mike Leader and Arnie Venema. Uh, there's Jamie Luck at Shaw Brothers, which is an interview with this uh, the actor from this, uh, this is subtitled in English, um, who also, the, the, the interviewer, Frederic Ambrosine also did a bunch of interviews in that Shaw Shawscope uh, Volume One set, and then the original theatrical trailer and a nice little insert booklet as well. I thought overall, if you if you got that Shawscope and you're like, I can't wait for Shawscope Volume Two, I want more. Well, here you go. <laughs> if you've got that kind of money to blow. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about that TV show. Uh, that uh, sounded threatening. I genuinely don't know what John Golson thinks about Kevin can fuck himself. I know that. I really, really enjoyed Shit's Creek, although it took me a season to get into it. Like the first season, you're like, this is just a sitcom. I don't know what everybody's so excited about. And then they start getting much more into character work. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm starting. To, and by the end, I totally loved it. But this stars Annie Murphy, who was one of the stars of that show. And she's definitely the selling point here. Like they're like, okay, she is the one that they're going. Everybody loves Shit's Creek. Well, here's what she's doing now watch the show. And I like the idea of like, conceptually, this is great where they're like, what if we see what life is actually like for the poor harried wife on like every sitcom ever made? Like, yeah. you know, like what if it's like, let's just follow Marge instead of Homer most of the time. Right. right. Like what is her life like? Uh, or more specifically who I think, um, you know, what's the one with a, uh, with another Kevin and it's like it. King of Queens, King of Queens. Like yeah. what if we just followed more of the woman and there's part, whenever she's in the same room with her husband, it's a sitcom. It's just like, here's a sitcom with a life laugh track and very sitcom-y type dumb nineties jokes. But every time she leaves the room or is with any other character except him, it's the, it's done a completely different camera style. They switch from single camera to multi-camera, uh, different type of film stock, not played for laughs, where she's her life is miserable and her life is miserable to the point where she's like, I'm seriously thinking about killing him. Like, I, I don't think I can handle this anymore. And she's sort of gets into her, her plot of this. Somebody who's initially was friends with her husband, but has started to slow come over to her side as she sees. I, I guess I wasn't thinking outside my bubble of just laughing at, at Kevin um, played here by Eric Peterson, but 
I, now I see your side. Yeah, he really is kind of a jerk, <laughs> isn't he? And she sort of gets on his side here, uh, reluctantly getting in, involved in the scheme to possibly murder him. Uh, you know, it's short, and I think I I was just so in love with the idea. I kept going, this is going to pick up, right? This is going to get better. And it's never bad. It's just oh, you have the exact same opinion. It's just not that good either. Yeah. And the problem, one of the problems is the sitcom stuff is dreck. And I maybe that's the joke, but I was like, "Oh my god, fuck, stop it, please." I have I have two big problems with this show. One of them is that it's not what if we followed somebody into the real world from a sitcom. Mm-hmm. It's what if we followed somebody into a different AMC show. Yeah. And it's like so it's there, even the half that's supposed to be real is slickly artificial. It's her getting mixed up with like drug runners and hitmen. Yeah, it's, it's a an very AMC show. AMC show. <laughs> yeah. And my problem with it was the pitch of it being, oh, see what happens when she leaves her sitcom life. And it's like, yeah, she just goes to another TV show full of cliches. Yeah. So I'm watching two different sets of cliches. They're just filmed differently from each other. And yeah. I had a problem with this, that structure. I was just like, I didn't know that that's, that's what the show was going to be. And then two, three episodes in, I'm just like, both halves are phony. Yeah. Neither half strikes me as particularly true. Yeah. The, the dramatic half is, you know, it's dour and it's a melodramatic and it, it's very dark. And 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 then the other side is like, you know, almost to the point of magical realism absurd. Yeah. And that's a problem with, that's my second problem. Is that you're you're watching something that's about on the level of Flintstones? Yeah, with with one half of a show they, they went too, and far. then they want to murder him. Yeah, and I'm like, you watch the episode that's almost it, the the quality of it reminded me a lot of um, Disney Channel sitcoms from the early 2000s. Uh-huh. But the main character Kevin is basically Fred Flintstone. He wakes up every day and he's like Bonnie, and then he's got like whatever his plan is. And there was one where it was, oh, we're going to open our own escape room, and we have this big plan. We're going to open an escape room <laughs> that you can't and escape me- from. And, and these doofuses are trying to run their own escape room, and it's all wacky hijinks. And then cut back to her, and she's trying to negotiate his murder. <laughs> and I'm like, you're not showing me enough of what's wrong with him. For me to get on your side as to this person deserving to die. Well, I mean, because what I'm seeing is basically Fred Flintstone. Yeah, I mean, you just and never I believe... I don't know why I would want to see that character get murdered. You never believe that he's a real person on any level. And yeah. the other side is like, well, this is the stuff that's real, even though that stuff's supposed to be real, too. And I'm like, I just... I can't, I'm like, I felt like there's going to be a reveal that she's like that, all that stuff, none of that's real. Like secretly, she's like a sitcom writer and everything's just a metaphor. (laughs) I just think they don't do a good job of vilifying him for us to get on her side that the only good plan is murder. Yeah. And I I don't root for her to succeed. No. But I don't root for him either because I don't want to, when his segments come up, it's like, oh, great. Now I get to watch a bad sitcom for (laughs) six minutes, seven minutes. Uh, Yeah. I I think we're more really disappointing. I think you dislike this more. More than I did, but I still didn't like it. I don't, they've said there's going to be one more season and that's it, but I don't know if I'm going to finish it. I just don't, even with the end, which is a little bit of a cliffhanger, I was like, okay. I mean, I guess, I guess I just don't have any dog in the fight of whether or not Kevin can go fuck himself. (laughs) 
Kevin isn't real yeah. and he never feels real and she never, his wife never feels real. So who cares? No. I don't know. I know people who like this enough to put it on their best of the year list though. Oh, wow. Yeah. I uh, watched the whole thing. I, yeah, I did too. I, I thought, I thought, you know, I'll probably watch like five or six episodes enough to be able to talk about it. And I was like, you know what? This, I didn't realize this was going to be as plot driven as, as it actually, well, seems to think like it is i just kept waiting for that one that was going to click for me where it was going to yeah. be like oh, oh now this we're is on the, like, this is the yeah. standout one. and it was like no <laughs> yeah never happened there is some extra features very brief there's a five and a half minute a look at the series which is just epk with interviews and stuff uh meet the characters for seven minutes introductions of everyone in it and six uh six and a quarter minutes of making the show looking at production issues that's about it um yeah and eh, meh Meh, John, meh. All right, we're moving back to movies, and we're talking about a movie that I think is a generally, <laughs> genuinely an all-time Mavis. classic. Mavis. <laughs> uh, which is The Wolf of Wall Street, which is now available in 4K. And I was excited to get it in 4K, because this Martin Scorsese 2013 film is really a gorgeous-looking movie. It's gorgeously shot. I believe it was the first one he did in digital, if I'm not mistaken, where he threw up his hand and said, fuck it, okay, fine, I'll do digital. Uh, and it looks terrific anyway, so whatever, film nuts. Uh, this also is, you know, one of many films. I, I forget how many, I want to say it's like six movies he's done Le with Leonardo DiCaprio. Definitely like Leo is his new De Niro. Yeah. It seems like, like the guy he keeps going, like I'll work with him and vice versa. But the real surprise in this movie was a Jonah Hill, who was a comedic actor, but this movie, even though these roles are all sort of played for laughs, they're also never wacky enough that you don't believe they're real people. And they are indeed based from what I'm, I'm re I've read pretty closely on the real people with some amount of exaggeration, but that, yeah, that's pretty good representation of what that guy was like, I guess. Uh, and Jonah Hill plays a role that is a comedic role, but of a totally different kind. Uh, DiCaprio, I don't think is stretching completely outside of his reach of things he's done before here, but nonetheless, it's a powerful, strong, very loud and volatile performance. Uh, I can't think of anything I don't like about this. It even introduced the world to Margot Rob Robbie, you know, in a the sexiest way possible. And she's so good in this. She was like, this is one of those films, like, as it's happening, you're like, oh, that lady's going to be a huge star. I remember seeing it going, yeah, she's going to be a household name inside of a year. And sure enough, she was. Uh, and the 4K, you know, I mean, hey, it's... It, it, I, I have a 4K player, I have a 4K TV set, and if it's a movie this good, I want the best possible copy of it. And I felt like overall this lived up to that in terms of uh, the uh, video. Now, it's just the original DTS HD uh, Master Audio 5.1 lossless soundtrack from the previous Blu-ray release. Uh, and this includes, if our extra is the loan supplement from the 2014 Blu-ray disc, uh, and adds to that were not included on that one originally. Uh, it uh, Apparently, Paramount's packaging says these were returning from another release, so this may have been stuff from a limited edition release or something that wasn't on the general release. But the three things are The Wolf Pack, which 17-minute examination of Scorsese's take on the story, Jordan Belfort's life, uh, and uh, looks at uh, characters in there, Running Wild, 11 minutes and 21 seconds, uh, which is uh, focuses really on the collaboration between DiCaprio and Scorsese. Uh, and then the Wolf of Round Wall Street Roundtable with DiCaprio, Scorsese, uh, Winter, and Hill all sitting together in a room and basically in a very, very edited take. I wish they had just said, just give us the unedited, like like an hour and a half of these guys in the same room talking. 
I would watch. You don't need to cut it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but a very edited take on their uh, conversation. But I don't know, John, I mean, do you, are you as fan, big a fan of this film as I am? I had never seen it. Oh, um, wow. Okay. This is a first for me. And an interesting thing happened. It's also the first film where I felt like I'd seen a gif from every single major scene or moment in the movie. <laughs> right. It was really odd. I'd not, I've not ever experienced ingesting a film by osmosis online. Mm-hmm. I've done it before through books or, or, uh, saturation and pop culture stuff like Harry Potter, kind of like, I kind of had a vague grasp of the major beats, like sitting down. This is one where, as it was happening, I was like, oh, that's the thing. Oh, that's, this is the dance thing. Oh, this is the pointing thing. Oh, this is the, it was like all these scenes and moments that I'd seen spread out across the internet, either as GIFs or videos people shared. Um, so that was a strange sensation. Um, man, I, uh, (laughs) Not a not a huge fan of this one. Oh wow! Um, okay, I like Scorsese's stuff, so it's like it's a it's a gimme. It's not a piece of crap. Like it's just not. But it's unrelenting three hours of this guy, <laughs> and it's so much. It's it's really for me was too much. Oh, like okay. he's so unpleasant and so unlikable. Um. It was too much of this Jordan character for me. I I found it uh, like really well made, well staged, well produced, um, and just punishing. Just absolutely I get that. punishing. And there were definitely some critics who responded to it in the sense that like I that they didn't feel that either a in the movie the character is appropriately punished for his behavior, which is outrageous and hurt lots of people, or that through their actions in making this film. The real life Jordan Belfort felt like they, people felt like he was being rewarded for his behavior after the fact that he's just never really been punished for the, the things he did. Yeah. He'll never be that guy on t- like I, king of the world again, as you, if you will, right. it. but like he's now making a decent living being a guy who just goes around doing lectures. You know, yeah, I would assume, I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I'm not expecting cosmic justice because I assume this guy's still out making millions. Like it, that part of it didn't factor in for me. It was just a matter of like, it felt like a really long time to hang out with this guy. <laughs> yeah. He's it, pretty intense. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. Uh, I, th- I, I think you gotta have some degree of schadenfreude where you're both like, you're both like enjoying hating him and, kind of being a little bit jealous at the same time you know i can't imagine filming this as long as the film is as well i can't imagine how exhausting these scenes where it's like just there's scene after scene where it is a busy office or a crowded uh room or a plane filled wall-to-wall people the orchestration of these like group scenes where the energy has to be up to 11 in every single scene. Like how many takes are you getting of stuff? Like how exhausting is it to like, Oh, what did you do all day yesterday? Oh, we pretended like we were in a party for 14 hours. Yeah. And it's just like, Oh my God. Well, they talk about some of that in the bonus features. Oh yeah. This was tough. Yeah. It, um, It looks like it would have been exhausting to make. Yeah. Um, and there are sequences in here. I think are among, there's one sequence I think is among the best scenes that, Scorsese's ever filmed, which is where, uh, 
Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill's character both take these like really powerful quaaludes, but they're old. Mm -hmm. So they start, you know, doing that thing, which is kind of a cliche, but a true one. They, oh, it must not be, they must not be strong anymore. Let's take a bunch more. And then at the worst possible moment, they kick in and they're both like, you know, that scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or the man on the, in the depths of an ether bitch. (laughs) And the whole sequence with both of them, as you follow what's going on with both of them there and then them confronting each other on it is, I I've seen it before, this movie like three times and I still every time I just cry and laughing watching this sequence. It's brilliantly f- filmed and performed. I think so. I agree. <laughs> I don't disagree. I, it's just a, this this comes down to a matter of taste. This just sure. wasn't for me. It's a great film. It wasn't for me. No, that's totally understandable. I know people I would never even try to show this film to. I'd be like, there's no way they're going to like it. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to another film that I'll be curious to know what you think, although I suspect I know the answer, which is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Oh, Let There Be Carnage. Which is Venom 2. Let There Be Carnage. With a double entendre in the title. Uh, Because Carnage is the name of the character that Woody Harrelson plays in here. Let There Be That. (laughs) Let there be some of that. You just seem so filled with joy when you think back, when you reminisce about Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Yes. Is this your first time seeing it? Uh, What I was hoping for when I sat down was, first of all, that it would have Venom in it, and second of all, that someone would let there be carnage. Uh I did not walk away disappointed. (laughs) Venom was in it, and someone did let there be carnage. Two thumbs up. Is that your full review? <laughs> That's my whole review. Uh, this was cock-a-doo-doo. Um, did not enjoy Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Not even in that way that people forgave the first one by going, but it's so wacky. And it's like, yeah, this one's wacky. It's also kind of terrible. Um, it reminded me of like old superhero. Honestly, Venom reminded me of an old superhero movie. How yeah. it's like, oh, there's secret labs, and I fight the guy that's just like me in no, the secret lab. They structured and like, in film exactly like an early '90s superhero film. Yeah, and Carnage was the same. I except somehow dumber. Like <laughs> I found it abrasive and and like real. Like little kid edge lord, like not even yeah. like cool edge lord. Like <laughs> this was so, this was so much worse than I could have imagined. Oh my I, god! I did not. I I I was so whatever about Venom. Like I didn't hate it. I also didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, that I was like, oh, you know, okay, cool. They got this one as the the actual character you would have wanted to see in the first one. But instead, it's like, oh, I fought my opposite in the first one, but it's like a boring opposite. Now I fight my opposite, and he's like an exciting opposite. He's, he's that guy he's from a, Natural Born he's Killers. A serial killer. <laughs> also, while you while you mention that, is it just me or is it freaking hilarious that the movie has a date at the beginning that's like 1990 whatever and Woody Harrelson is a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he was already a grown man on Cheers and Cheers was off the air by the time that this the date appears. Trying to pretend he's screen. not in his mid 50s now. I'm film. just like but then you cast him so I can look at him like I know that's Woody Harrelson I know he was not a child in the 90s right, right. like he just wasn't. He was, wasn't a child in the 80s. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things though that starts the movie off on such a wrong foot and there's some I like I I have a soft spot in my heart for movies that will get off on the wrong foot 
the minute that the studio logo is gone, <laughs> that you're just like, who? Okay, strap in. <laughs> Here we go. Um, and this is one of those where it was just like, the year is 1994, and then I see the kid that's Woody Harrelson, and he talks with Woody Harrelson's voice. I know. Like they, they, dubbed in, dubbed they dubbed in Harrelson. And that I was, was just like, choice. oh, it's already off the rails. Like, it didn't even... It didn't, it didn't even start on the rails. Like, it started, the train was off to the side of the track, and somebody was yelling, choo-choo, out the window, but it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, I did not I did not enjoy Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Look, if, if you want to hear the plot, by the way, we did review this proper on the site, and we get more into that and all the details. I'm not going to just repeat the whole story here again. Uh, you, you can listen to that review if you want to. Suffice it to say, if you don't already know the plot, you probably don't give a shit about Venom, Let There Be Carnage either. We don't care if it's good or bad. You're not seeing it either way. That's fine. I don't think you're missing anything either way, really. I mean, I am much more forgiving to this than you are. I actually maybe even like this a little bit better than the first one, which I also was kind of like, meh, I mean, it's fine, I guess. The biggest problem with the first one is you couldn't follow what was going on with any of the action, and Venom didn't talk enough. The stuff where it was like, a romantic comedy between Venom and, and, uh, uh, Eddie, 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 with Tom Hardy voicing both. I thought it was really funny. And I think in this, they up that and have even more fun with it. Although at points it goes too far and gets like, okay, come on. Like there's a kitchen scene that's like, like where he's like, Venom's trying to make breakfast for him, which is just dumb and childish and doesn't fit. And it's like, this is one of those movies that felt like 80 people wrote it and they, and then say forgot to get a guy to like, make sure that like to edit it, make sure it all fit together totally. Cause it yeah. doesn't, but there are parts in this. I really like, there's a part where Venom goes into like a, like a nightclub and has this big speech and it's very much a get it. It's like gay empowerment. Get it. Like, and I'm like, okay. And I knew a lot of gay people who were like, okay, I'm in really into this because of that entirely. Great. All right. I felt like it's a little, I would call it pandering, but you know, you know, it's like, really? Venom is the one that you want to do that with? Okay. <laughs> but Eternals, you're just like, whatever. All right. But anyway, uh, yeah, this is, um, it's just, a, it's be- at best just okay. At worst, one of the most abysmal superhero movies of the last decade, which I've heard people say those words almost uh, entirely. There are a few extras here. Uh, and they're all just kind of EPKs, but some of them are fun. There's like three, three and a half minutes of outtakes and bloopers where they're having fun in there. Uh, I like they actually explore Eddie. The best part is Eddie and Venom, the odd couple where they really get into their sort of back and forth and trying to make the comedy work and their relationship. And there's a lot of, there's a whole look at the, all the Easter eggs that are hidden in. And again, I'll say for the billionth time, I just don't like the whole symbiote thing in the comics very much. It wasn't until, Donnie Cates started writing it that I was like, oh, that's actually an interesting idea <laughs> uh, that started like, oh, the whole idea that like the, the, it gets into Lovecrafty and stuff. Anyway, I'm not going to go all into that. But like, when you know, when they have Flash Thompson in the suit and stuff, I'm like, OK, that stuff's actually not too bad. But all the previous stuff the and the I've never seen the Carnage do anything interesting in the comic book. So I don't care about symbiote Easter eggs. But if you do, they are here. <laughs> one, if, once it gets past Carnage, it, it's. It's a big ask for me to get interested in Carnage stuff. Mm. Once it gets past Carnage and you start doing Shriek and you start doing these other ones, that's when I'm just I'm just out. I just check out. Like Yeah. And talking comic book wise, like I know Shriek is in this movie, but yeah. just comic book wise, the more symbiote 
guys there are on the cover, the less interested I am. <laughs> like, can I just say the post credit scene here was, you know, you, you're supposed to get you excited because it was like, oh, they're finally tying this, the Sony films into the Marvel films. And then you don't even see Tom Hardy's character. You don't even see Venom until the post credit scene in Spider-Man. And they're like, oh, no, sorry, we changed our yeah, mind. <laughs> and, Sony, and Sony punts him back. Yes. I mean, Marvel punts Marvel him back punts to him Sony. Right back. Yeah, you're Sony's like, like, yeah, and now he's in the MCU. And Marvel's like, yep, he was. Yep. There you go. There's your, that's technically all we agreed to, that he would appear in this film. <laughs> so It's so ridiculous. I laughed really hard. It was like I knew one guy who was like really disappointed. I'm like, really? You really wanted to see this Venom in there? Even though it ends with sort of like, oh, but now they'll maybe be a different Venom. Mm. I hope if they do that, they're just going to find a way to do the classic, here's how the symbiote suit first came into the universe, because Peter Parker finds it, puts it on, thinks it's just He's been alien space. suit. Yeah. He could have picked, he could have, they could have already planted those seeds in other movies when he was in outer space. Uh, who knows what they're going to be doing. But. They got so many seeds they could go with. Anyway, let's move on to another uh, recent release, The Mitchells versus The Machines, which Netflix thought was quite good enough and was well-received enough to make it worth, worthy of putting out a Blu-ray home set of it, uh, which I completely concur with. I think this is a pretty solid home release uh, or animated film from uh, Sony Pictures Animation, and they're not overwhelmingly known for their great animated films, with the exception of their Oscar-winning Spider-Man film, of course. But I thought this was terrific, and I should have known, because it is, in fact, written, uh, produced by... Phil Lord and Chris Miller and co-written by them. And those guys tend to do really great animated movies, generally speaking, even though they didn't direct it. It was Mike Rianda, uh, who was known best for his work on the, sh the really good show Gravity Falls, which is sort of like a kiddie X-Files, mm -hmm. if that sounds interesting to you at all. But uh, it follows a very dysfunctional family, uh, the Mitchells. Katie Mitchell being the the character who the, the film really follows, voiced by Abby Jacobson, who's an aspiring filmmaker. Her parents, Rick and Linda, voiced uh, respectively by Danny McBride and Maya Rudolph. Uh, and uh, the, the younger brother, uh, Mike Rianda, uh, as Aaron, who's really into dinosaurs. Anyway, um, and it's, you know, it's kind of a road trip movie, really, but it's also like a... I don't know. You know, the best thing I can way to describe this is it's like the Lego movie. If all of the pop cultural references instead of movies and TV shows were internet memes. Oh yeah. I could see that. You know, I mean, it's that same type of humor. It's that same type of structure. It's just, they've changed what the reference points are. So your parents are not going to get this movie probably. Well, my parents, Yeah, <laughs> but you know, most of your parents out there are probably like my age. So whatever. This was really good. I watched it twice. Uh, probably my favorite animated movie of the year. Ooh. Um, it, it, about a, you know, the, really the daughter father relationship, because the whole inciting incident of it is she's going to go away to college and kind of has had enough of her dad for a little while. They just burned out. That happens in relationships with mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. Um, but dad decides the only way to mend that relationship is to drive her cross country to, to the college that she's going to attend, right. which throws a monkey wrench into her plans. Um, but then globally, there's a monkey wrench thrown into everyone's plans when a, uh, an AI, um, begins to take over the world. So Voiced it becomes by like a Oscar winning Olivia Coleman. Yeah. It becomes a big sci-fi, um, you know, this, the second movie of 2021, or I guess the first, cause Ron's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Also mind the exact same sort of we're Apple and we created an AI and the AI like consumes everyone's lives. Right. Um, 
But yeah, the Mitchells vs. Machines is great. It is kind of in the vein of Spider-Man in regards to the way that its rhythms are, the way that they time jokes and material, and the way that they find they find new ways to incorporate 2D aesthetics into a 3D world. I mean, it's a very 3D world, but they have nothing against... They'll put... They they use stickers a lot in this, where they kind of, like, will place a sticker sort of on a screen or use, like, some bit of 2D design to illustrate some point, um, which feel, it felt like a natural evolution from what they were trying to push with Into the Spider-Verse. And it mm-hmm. looks like they're going even further experimental based on that trailer which will be interesting to see um but this this is a really this is really rock solid adventure comedy uh yeah it's animated but it really works you know beyond its trappings as a family film yeah to be something really enjoyable i remember i watched this i was like okay well i've got to watch this for end of the year stuff uh for for the austin film critics association and i just kind of turned it on where i'm like all right i'm i'm watching it but i'm also checking my phone and within 15 minutes i was just watching it you're like oh this is actually really good yeah <laughs> it, it will lock you in it is worth your time the big question being is it worth owning a blu-ray copy of rather than just watching on netflix and the differences you get here is there are two cuts of the film, the original one, the one available there, which is an hour and 49 minutes, and Katie's extended cinematic bonanza cut, which is an hour and 52 minutes, and preceded by a minute-long director intro, which is largely just alternate versions of scenes in there with a more basic animation style. So I'm not sure if they didn't even finish the animation, why you would prefer to watch that version. That It was a weird choice to actually include that as a full cut here. Uh, but it also comes with a DVD copy, and you can get your movie anywhere it's not like netflix who owns it is gonna go like well we've decided to put it in the vault there's no netflix vault yeah okay of netflix originals i don't think there's going to be uh, but there's a bunch of bonus features here including a short film uh, called dog cop seven the final chapter which is about eight and a half minutes long which is a sort of crude intentionally crude looking but funny movie that's supposed to be by the film's protagonist katie mitchell there's 25 minutes and 18 seconds of bonus scenes deleted and extended scenes all but filmed in early conceptual animation stages there's katie's cabinet of forgotten wonders for 11 and a half minutes were just little bite-sized epk supplements uh the mitchells versus the machines are how a group of passionate weirdos made a big animated movie for almost 13 minutes which interviews with the filmmakers uh, there's an audio commentary with a whole bunch of the people behind the scenes on this one uh there's a how-to two of them here where audiences you can learn how to make sock puppets or you can uh uh make face cupcakes with katie and then previews of other Sony titles. But yeah, this is charming. It's fun. You should check it out. If you like animation at all, it's definitely one from last year that's kind of a must-see if you like that. And that's moving to the movie I'm most curious to know of this whole set, what it is you think of. There's one I would have said that for, but then you told me already how you feel about it by saying you've seen it twice. And I was like, okay, well, clearly he liked it. Oh, it depends on what you're about to ask me, because I think our remainder, I've seen both of those twice. Uh, no Time to Die. The no Time to Die, is no. The final James Bond, Daniel Craig movie uh, is fifth and final outing. I know some people are like, that seems like just a few. I'm like, well, technically he's... There are two guys who did less movies than him, Timothy Dalton and uh, uh, George Lazenby. And I think he's tied with Pierce Brosnan. Four Pierce Brosnan. Was it only four Pierce Brosnan? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. He's actually one of the longer lasting ones, all things considered. Uh, But this one brought in first time director for the series, Kerry Fukunaga, who's uh, yeah, I, th- I can say is best known for directing the triumphant first season of True Detective, but he's done some other really great stuff like Sin Nombre and Jane Eyre. 
Uh, I was really, really looking forward to this one because more than not, I've enjoyed the whole Daniel Craig series. I think there's definitely weak points. I think Quantum of Solace was previously the, the lowest point. I'm honestly kind of surprised by the degree to which some people despise Spectre because I'm like, I don't really see this film through the same hatred lens you guys do. I, I didn't think it was as good as Skyfall, which is I arguably the best film in the whole series, but like – that's not a reason to hate it, per se. I'm still a little baffled by the amount of disdain that film got. And then I saw this movie and was like, yeah, it was fine, I guess. It didn't do anything that even faintly surprised me. And in fact, ultimately, in terms of wrapping things up, especially in terms of several characters who are no longer in the series uh, as of this, I thought it was a kind of ignominious endings for some of these characters. Like, oh, really? That's it? Okay. I don't know, man. This didn't, uh, I talked about this at length in the review. Uh, I know on the review, the all four of us were all kind of meh on this, but overall, this has been widely received as one of the best films in the series, which again, kind of shocks me because I, I think this is this probably my second least favorite. I liked it more than I thought I would coming off of Spectre. Um, and I'm not like, I, my relationship with the James Bond films is I, I don't l- like them all. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, they're not all good by any question definition. No, no for sure. Um, I mean, even just of the, the, the more recent ones, it's funny. I own them all, but then it's yeah, like, would I call myself a fan? And I think that there are James Bond fans, like real James Bond fans, and I'm not one of those. I don't know where, I don't know what my relationship with James Bond is. I, I am typically not excited about a new James Bond release. Hmm. I'm normally not pumped or hype or <laughs> anything about any given James Bond release going going back to the eighties when they were coming out when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, there's 25 of them. So, (laughs) but like, even like when they've reset and they've been like, Oh, GoldenEye," or like, Oh, now, you know, Casino Royale. And it's like, I like some of them. I, yeah, I do. I liked Casino Royale and I, I really liked Skyfall. I thought quantum was whatever. And I didn't like Spectre just mostly because I thought Spectre was boring. And I think the Blowfield is secretly your brother stuff is real. Like very, J.J. Abrams mystery box, hmm. like oh, there's got to be a tie-in when it's like yeah, that was the weakest part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no reason for Blowfield to have think, a revelation. I think my biggest problem with this is that it's it moves for it's it moves for two hours, and it's you still got another hour, hmm. and so that back hour, it it starts to the movie the engine of the movie starts to sputter, and it's like. It's it it was moving for a good clip for the first two hours. I'm like, this is pretty freaking good. It's honestly the tipping point is the more that Rami uh, Malik shows up in the film, yeah. it starts to noticeably slow to a crawl, and then you've got another yeah, you've got a roughly an hour to sit there in the finale of it, and it does not pick back up. No, it does not get back up to the levels that it was in the first well, hour because that initial that whole car chase scene mm-hmm. is fantastic. The scene in, I think it's Cuba with, uh, Ana de Armas yeah. is terrific. I, and I hope they, if 
if I don't know how they're going to continue the series on in what context, or is it the same universe and somebody else takes on Jane? You know, there's a lot of talk. I think they'll just reboot it, but I would totally watch a spinoff just about her character here because you're like, oh, that's because she's like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, and she totally knows what she's yeah. doing, and I was like, oh, that's fun. Yeah, uh, I, f- I found it fun. I found the first hour of it really fun. I think I, again, I don't, I don't know. It just can't sustain, and I think no. that they thought length would. I think it's a case of like length is a grand send off. Like, oh, if we give him a full three hour movie, it'll that'll be the big send off for Daniel Craig. And it's like, I don't know that the story needed to be no. three hours. I'm not a guy who bemoans movies being too long, but um, but you kind of feel this in the last the last stretch of it. Uh, I like this. I like this a lot. I liked it more than I thought I would. And honestly, the stuff in it that was surprising really did surprise me because I didn't think that they would ever do that. Hmm. Those, those things, there's multiple things, but they were all things that I went, Oh, and I, and you get it. Cause it's like, they're going to reset it anyway. So they, this is the first one where they've kind of gone, well, we're going to reset anyway. So we can actually do some things with James Bond and make time progress and, and have his life change in dramatic ways. And it was like, that's cool. I, you know, short of her Majesty's secret Ser- uh, service, which this has been compared to, for those reasons, it's the only time that we've seen um, James Bond be given that kind of flexibility that comes from the fact that there will be a reset. I guess it's because I just didn't buy it. I was yeah. like, I just, I, I wasn't convinced of it. It felt like exactly that. Oh, we're ending this anyway, so we can do whatever the fuck we want to. And, and no, it didn't feel like they were taking it seriously. <laughs> and mm. especially the way they write off Blofeld. I was like, seriously, that's it. Oh, wow. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this stuff i like but i think yeah the the ending is lifeless um no pun intended uh rami malik i i'm like i like what you're attempting to do with this character but he's got almost no screen time and as such is like the, it's almost like they forgot he was supposed to be in the movie until he suddenly is in the movie again and the plot's a little overly convoluted at points you're like okay i felt like you could have lost a whole bit of this and it would have worked better but anyway it doesn't matter i talked about that longer in the review i mean like listen i know more people than not that really like this for me i thought it was a lesser one but i watched it again and i'm like okay there's a lot still to like in this it's just you know overall we found it disappointing there are some bonus features here that come with the blu-ray or the 4k here uh four featurettes uh, you know, I think they're exclusively on the Blu-ray that comes shipped with the 4K, which is the anatomy of a scene, uh, Matera, which is the great car chase, um, keeping it real, the action of no time to die, which takes how they did the practical action sequences. And there's a lot of practice. There's more practical than not action sequences. Uh, a global journey, which looks at, you know, all the places around the globe they go to designing bond, looking at the sets and costumes and being giant James Bond, which is the one that's exclusively on the 4K, which is 46 minutes, which will look back at Craig's whole 15 year tenure as James Bond. So if you know, you want the long one, the one that's actually kind of a real documentary, you got to buy the 4K. Just saying. Sorry, people who haven't bought 4K yet. <laughs> Who love James Bond. Let's move on to another one. And this is the one I was like, initially was like, okay, I don't know how he actually felt about this. But then you're like, oh, I've seen it twice. I'm like, okay, I guess he liked Ghostbusters Afterlife. Because why would you watch it twice otherwise? The surprise is, Uh I didn't like Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, no. I'm so sad. That's the surprise. I was looking forward to you coming in here and just geeking out like crazy about all things Ghostbusters. I was excited Uh, for it. Nope. No, I, uh, you watched I, it because you have a have a niece who wanted to see it. I watched it because my goddaughter was over, or and goddaughter. She yeah. watched, uh, she watched it, 
and I saw it in the theaters. I don't dislike it uh, to a great degree. I think it's mostly kind of inoffensive. Um, but I find it very... I, I don't think that... I just don't agree with people who like it. <laughs> and that's just the wow. bottom line of it. Because well, the stuff that I've heard in defense of it is like, oh, they came out with a really clever way to bring back the old Ghostbusters. And I'm like, I don't think that there's anything particularly clever about it's his children. Like, that's not... And and then setting up like, oh, and like they the plot has a lot of surprises and is really clever the way they set it up. And it's like, oh, but that thing on top of the building and, and Gozer and Zool and all that stuff... It, that it's that again, but it's in a cave, and yeah. I'm like, that's not that clever of an expansion. Either. Yeah, I would never claim that they were clever ideas. I would claim that they were just extremely well executed. I think it's weird to also kind of go like, I don't know. It's so strange to me that like, there's a running gag in the all the Ghostbusters movies are comedies. This one has stuff that's obviously supposed to be funny. But there's stuff in it that's like, I don't think I don't think much of what's supposed to be funny is 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 funny. First of all, um, podcast being like the main comic relief character, and I just don't think that kid's funny. <laughs> and then the thing with the girl, like the joke of it being, what if the main character tells bad jokes, like bad from a bad joke book, bad? Mm-hmm. And it was like, what a weird way to write a comedy to be like, all her like jokes are going to be like bad joke book jokes. So this is the thing I'm going to largely agree with you on. Okay. said my initial review, I think the biggest problem that a lot of people have with this is that all the rest of them are comedies. And this one just isn't. It's, it's a drama with comedic aspects. It really feels a lot like stranger things. And that's not just because one of the actors from stranger things are, is in it or that, Almost everything with kid actors now that is a genre base feels to some degree like Stranger Things because of the success of that. It straight up has that same vibe where like I am watching a a supernatural drama that has lighter moments in it. And when they go overly goofy is when this film stops dead. Like there's a scene with Paul Rudd with a bunch of tiny little baby marshmallow men. Where he's just naming Baskin just, Robbins products. It's just atrocious. Like walking around going like. This kind of ice cream, this kind of sprinkle, this well, kind of... It's I like, even, even that didn't bother me. It was just like, all the thing with the marshmallow man. I was like, this is just absurd. It doesn't even make any sense contextually I, in the film. I don't understand Why a couple things here? in the movie. I don't understand how he's at the only Walmart in the world with no employees and no... It has no one is... No one is behind... There's no one visible. There's not an extra in the store with him. Right. And when the big thing chases him out, which is in the trailers, chases yeah. him out to the parking lot, there's no other cars in the parking lot. <laughs> like, I was like, what Walmart is this that is just open door Walmart that's just <laughs> right. like, nobody's there. You know, it's just a country Walmart. It's just huh? so weird. Yeah. I could not for the life of me understand, and, and I watched it twice, why is the genius girl in summer school? How come it's the case of Oh, we're going to go clean the old house out. And while we're there, you're going to attend summer school. But there wasn't a conversation about she failed anything. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't I even couldn't figure to think why. I Just from a logistics standpoint, like not to red letter media. It, yeah. But, I assumed that like but she's probably one like, of those people who's like smarter how did they than the. Get the house and then. And how are they able to immediately enroll her in school? I don't know. I don't These know. These are not the sort of things okay. I worry about Sorry. in movies like this. Why is J.K. Simmons in this movie? 
Because he's been in every single movie by this director. What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's why. All right. Yeah. That's I was all. just they like, were like is, we got to find. I was like, some- is this a uh, what's his name Guy Pierce Prometheus situation where yeah. it's just like he's for some reason in it and you're like, are you going to do more with him? And it's like, no, we're not. It's yeah. like, okay. That's so weird when films do that. In this case, and I wondered that too. And in the bonus features, they explain apparently Jason Reitman, son of the original director uh, who produced it and, and worked on it as well. Uh, he's been in, I think every single one of his films. So it was like, I gotta, he's my good luck charm or something. I don't know. Also, Olivia Wilde is in this, which I had no idea she was playing Gozer the Gozer. No, somebody else. No, it's Olivia Wilde. Um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure somebody else. But it's a. It's a. It's, it's a. It's an model. Olivia. No, I swear. In the extra I features, swear. in the extra features, they say Olivia Wilde is her, and they even she's not credited her. on IMDb. It's a completely different person. I don't. I see. Now I'm gonna have to look it up on Wikipedia and go like, no, John. Because we thought it looked like Olivia Wilde. Looked it up immediately after, and we're like, oh, it's somebody we've never heard of. Well, see, I'm just saying they. I just watched the bonus features, and in there they said it was Olivia Wilde, hmm. which I didn't know that it was at all. It never occurred to me that it was a proper. Actress I wonder if they digitally. Placed her face. I wonder if it was, if it was some this actress on set, and that they deep faked her, on <laughs> basically Olivia Wilde's face onto this actress. Yeah, it it says uh, uh, Emma Portner plays Gozer's CGI spirit form, but I I'm telling you, in the bonus features, they said it was Olivia Wilde. I was like, is it? Because I mean, they never really show her without the makeup, so you're like. Okay, so maybe it was like one of those supposed to be a secret until a certain point and Wikipedia hasn't caught and IMDb didn't catch up. Or I don't know. Maybe they're wrong. Somebody who put together the features was like, IMDb oh, may fuck. be wrong. No, um, I'm, I'm just saying what they said on the bonus features because I was like, wait, what? They wouldn't have said it, though. I think I, I bet it's her digital face. I bet it's a case of she was not there on the set for that day, but they went, oh, we're going to give her the Olivia Wilde face. Well, maybe it is. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. That's just fucking weird, dude, Like this, that this has come up. Because like I said, I was just, I didn't know this or think this until I watched the bonus features. And I was like, maybe I fell asleep for a second and dreamed it? I, don't, I never heard, had anybody tell me they thought that was Olivia Wilde. So, no, it, it, yeah. I thought it was. Oh, like okay. that's that's why I looked it up. Like that's why the minute like that wasn't me actually. It was Wendy. The minute the movie was over, she was like, "Oh, that wasn't Olivia Wilde." And I was like, "What are you talking about? That was Olivia Wilde." And she said, "No, it's this other person." I looked it up on IMDb. I was like, "Oh, that's crazy, weird." Okay. Well, anyways, anyway, it'd be interesting if somebody can like sol- solve this for us. But uh, there are a lot of bonus features here, and I did in fact watch most of them because I like this movie. I thought it was charming. I thought it was much better than the last one, and the last one wasn't bad because it was all women. For this one, the lead character is a woman in this as well. So don't get on me, people. The last one is bad because it's just not fucking funny at all. And it's constantly trying to be funny. And it's just not funny. In fact, it's kind of annoying. And and can, there's all this contextual shit that doesn't make sense, like, constantly. It just wasn't a good movie. I don't tell you. It's not terrible, but it wasn't a good movie. This one... Overall, except for something about summer school, apparently, I thought it contextually fit together. It's got weak spots to it, and largely when it tries to be funnier, I don't think it works as well. But there's, I think, a lot here, especially the way they did stuff that wasn't just fan service. It served, whenever they did something that was a callback, with the very few exceptions, it actually served a real point in the plot. And, And the ending sequence, you know, where you actually you know, do something that would have been questionable if the entire family of the deceased actor hadn't said, yes, please do this. We are all behind it would have been, like I said, would have been questionable, but it's not in the context. Everyone was good with it. And you assume Ramis, who was always saying, I would have come back and done another Ghostbusters film. Bill Murray was always the stand, the, the holdout. 
uh, would have been okay with it. You know who played I found him? it. I found it like kind of uh, really heartwarming and kind of made me tear up a little bit watching the end of this. I was like, I thought it was genuinely nice. But what were you gonna say? Is that a, is that a spoiler? I feel like it was. I feel like people talked about it like it was a spoiler, which was weird because I just assumed that's where the movie was gonna go anyway. Well, I mean, he's a invisible ghost. Almost, yeah. Like fifteen I just minutes didn't know into if the we movie, could say, but do you, uh, what bringing that up though? Because I was like, well, I don't want to be the one that just says it outright. Mm-hmm. But if you're saying it outright, do you know who was on set as the character? Bob Gunton. Yeah, two different actors. Because in one scene, Ivan Reitman played oh, him really? as well. Yeah, according to the yeah, bonus features, which I guess I can't Bob trust. Was, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's one of the others. Yeah, yeah he, I didn't watch it. Um, yeah, you know, I just I, I don't. I was not one of the people that like was super. There were people. The online reaction to this was split, like, oh, totally. to the walls, the extreme walls. I love it. It's great. I couldn't stop weeping. Or, <laughs> like, I hated it. It's garbage. It's empty, facile. Like, I think it was, like, 70% of the pot, 70% positive was I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the middle-ish. I just think it's, I just found it kind of dull. Like, okay. just overall, just overall kind of dull. But not in a way that I found where I was like, oh, this offends my soul. <laughs> And but not in a way where I was like, oh, that was really good either. It was just kind of like, yeah, it's just a, it it's sort of, you know, you talked about the James Bond not feeling like it had a lot of surprises, and that's kind of the way this one was to me, where it was just like, I didn't see anything that I didn't get an inkling of in the trailer, and then it just sort of ended. Well, if you did like this, if you're one of those people, um, there are. I thought they did a good job with the extra features here, really talking a lot with both both the Reitmans here and them really explaining the process and. How how long it took before I mean Jason even knew that this was a thing he ever even wanted to do, um, and there's conversations with the original Ghostbusters where they're just sitting down talking for a decent amount of time, which is what you exactly what you want from from something like this. There's a pretty long, almost eight minute look at every single Easter egg in the film, and I thought I had seen them all. There's a lot of stuff that's really hidden in this, even callbacks to the cartoons and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I like. I think if you're going to do that kind of fan service, it should be where you don't know you missed something if you missed something. Yeah, I like the. Uh, there's a ghost out on the street that's one from the old toys where it has yeah, the eyeball the on giant the giant eyeball. And I was ghost. like, yeah, that's the old Kinder toy. <laughs> I, I liked that. And there's one deleted scene for about an hour, uh, hour and a half, a minute and a half with Annie Potts, just sort of an extension of her scene, which is nice because I, I remember thinking that was weird. They just kind of cut her out of the movie entirely after that one scene she got in here, yeah. you know. And then she's in a tiny bit in the very the the final end end credit scene with Ernie Hudson, which is more of a sort of yes we are going to do another Ghostbusters movie. And this time, Ernie Hudson will actually have more to do. Good job, Oh, are there Hudson. two post-credit scenes? Yeah, there's a post-post scene. Oh, I didn't know scene. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah did very, didn't very stay end. to the very, very end. I uh, knew about the one, but not the other. Well, we're going to finish this off with another look at another movie I've already reviewed. Sorry, there's a bunch of them in this one. But this is the 4K of Dune that I have been very clear how much I would have been looking forward to. And yet, still haven't had time to rewatch. I saw it in the theater. I talked about it at length. I've read about it at length. I still know it very much in my heart. I watched a lot of the bonus features, of which there are quite a few that come with the set that are, you know, of the Lord of the Rings set type of quality. They're taking it very seriously. They're going, you know, somewhat lengthily into every detail of the production. Uh, I mean, there's more than enough here 
that if that's what you're looking for, like a much more of a sort of a technical look at how the film was made and how the characters were developed and how they translated, then that's what they actually deliver. They give you a lot of that stuff. But in terms of the film itself, I mean, I like Lynch's original Dune. We've reviewed it here on the show before. I think it's more of a cliff notes of the book, which I, it might be the greatest science fiction novel ever written from my humble opinion, um, which I've read many times as well as its sequels, but his is, it just moves so fast. It comes off as silly. This movie never gives you the feeling of silly. It does everything it can to create a very realistic world. And I think it really pulls it off even while at times indulging a little bit in excesses that even Lynch's didn't go with. There's a whole sequence with like sort of the bloodletting blessing upon the Harkonnen troops that I thought was really fucking cool. Um, but yeah, I, I can't think of something to say about this new version of Dune that I disliked, except when it was over, I was just like, I could watch the whole next half now. If it was just like, we're going to put out the whole six hour thing at once, I'd be like, it's fine. Just if you got it, play it, man. <laughs> Keep it going. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, <laughs> That's John's review. Yep. I haven't seen the Lynch version recently. I, I still may be partial to the production design. I like how each individual place feels very, very, very distinct. Mm -hmm. And in this version, the world feels uh, more unified, which is not necessarily a good thing. Kind of reminds me of when a local restaurant becomes a chain and then they have to like sand all their ingredients down because <laughs> uh, they have to order them from, from national buyers. Right. So there's like our, like the Arrakis production design doesn't feel greatly different from the way a room looks at House Harkonnen versus the way a room looks uh, on um, uh, where the Atreides live at the beginning. Galadides, what's the name of that place? I should know. I Galadides, Man, whatever. when we did the original review, Anyways. I had like everyone on the review. I thought I was a Dune Zipper fan. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, the guys on this could tell me the rules of the board game. Yeah. You know, they're that level of super fan. They could remember like minor details from God Emperor of Dune. I'm like, all right. That's my th that's win. my most minor criticism is that I think production design wise, I still got to give it to Lynch's because I like the way that the places look distinct. If you're on, if you're everything in this is like it's brutalism. It's like giant concrete rooms mm -hmm. and it's like. Everybody kind of lives like that, no matter where you are. Um, I mean, we haven't seen the emperor's like we haven't room seen the emperor's the way but we I did with Lynch. I don't think we. I don't think that's going to be that. I mean, considering how all three worlds we get a good look at in this all kind of have this like a unified sense of place. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say they have the same architecture because sort of there's probably bare. there's probably production design stuff where it's like oh we always made sure that. In House Atreides, there were bookshelves or whatever. And it's like, there's little differences like that, but they're essentially big cavernous concrete yeah. and, spaces. And one, in, in video game terms, one's the water planet, one's the, the, the sand yeah. planet, and one is the hell lava planet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think this does a good job at, uh, I, I actually don't know that I think it's any more or less narratively clear than Lynch's, but I think that the, interpersonal drama works better so it, it can move you through the stuff that doesn't quite make sense whereas the same stuff doesn't quite make sense in lynch's if you haven't read the books mm -hmm. like the same kind of thing leaves you going like what are they talking about why are they talking about that why is that important did i miss that word before lynch is kind of like it there's no inroad characterization wise. There's nobody who's going to let you into that story from a character standpoint. Yeah. And this, the ensemble does. So you have this ensemble of interesting characters 
And yeah, you may not understand what they're talking about or the terms being used, but you're following them based on the context of their interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. So the film is just better made on that level. Like it carries an amount of drama with it because you are interested in the characters of the world, even if you don't have all the bits that would come from reading the novel. Yeah. Wow, you explained that. I felt like you wrote that down and then read it out. It's very well thought out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Considering that for the first like the first few minutes of this podcast, I was like, yeah, like it's good, it's shot well at the end. Like that's all. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to add to that. I mean, like I said, I glowed about this. This was my favorite movie of the year of 2021. Um, yeah. I, I definitely need to watch it again, but it's one of those like. I keep going, oh, I could watch this now, but I was like, yeah, but it's still light out and I want to wait till it's nighttime and I want to wait till like I'm in the house and I can turn the volume up really loud and not bother anyone. And this just never feels like it's the right time to watch it. So I watched it twice in within a day. Uh, I, I, that was the first post pandemic movie I went to, hmm. uh, and then watched it on HBO, uh, that night with Wendy because she wanted to see it. And I didn't think that I would turn around and watch it again. But I turned around and watched it again. Like I saw, I I got absorbed and watched the whole thing all over again. Okay. And I can't say, I can't think of another movie that I did that in 2021 hmm. with outside of Dune. Yeah, just Venom, Love, Liberty Carnage for me. Yeah, just over and over and over, <laughs> over and, and over. over. No, There's I mean, a couple I saw, like, I saw where it was like months apart and I wanted to show somebody. Like Love and Monsters, I wanted to show my yeah. brother. Or like showing Zeta, Psycho Goreman was like the best. I could not have... Me being so cool and just kind of like whatever about Psycho Gorman, watching it through the eyes of an 11-year-old, yeah, holy crap. She I'd, loved it? She loved it. She laughed tears almost from beginning to end of she that movie. Is, she is correct in her analysis And I was that, like, though. I now appreciate this on a different level than I would have otherwise. That is the most underrated film of 2021 yeah i would say easily the most underrated film of 2021 uh <laughs> but dune was rated appropriately people liked it a yeah. whole lot uh, yeah. i was glad to see our organization uh give it some awards yeah um yeah i, I still am just absolutely baffled Modern by classic. anyone who saw the power of the dog and then saw dune and went i thought power of the dog was better i'm like what what i mean i liked it too but are you fucking kidding me <laughs> but you know my 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 preferences lay in a different, you know, genre, I suppose. Anyway, uh, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you for joining me, John. But the question is, what is the pick of the week? The pick of the week is probably... Venom, I assume. I, it's, you know, if, <laughs> look, if you want there to be carnage, there's only one way to let there be carnage, <laughs> and that's to pick up Venom. Let there be carnage. Now on Digital Versatile Disc and Blu-ray, wherever fine films are sold. Um, you know, honestly, I'm going to give it to Mitchell's and the, Mach and the Machines. And the reason why is one, it's a great movie. It's not my, it's not even my favorite of the stack. It's a great movie, but there are com commercial motivations here. Um, I know Netflix released this on disc because it's a cartoon and they know they'll sell to families that want to put the, pop the disc in and the uh, headrest of the SUV as they're going to grandma's sure, house. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I totally get why this got a physical release. Netflix has been so sporadic on physical releases and I'm not even guys, I'm a digital person. I'm not even like a big physical release person, but it's bananas to me that I can't go buy Witcher season one in like a fancy box, hmm. like as a, just a collector or like the Marvel stuff or like, and I think some of that's out. <coughs> so I'm all for Netflix physical releases. So I'm giving it to Mitchell, the machines. Okay. Fair enough. And they do indeed put a lot of good bonus materials in with it. 
which I don't <laughs> think is available on Netflix. I don't think so. I don't know. Sometimes I have that stuff hidden away. Yeah, uh, like, I know that, like, HBO and Disney both put that stuff front and center. Like, oh, here, once you go to the movie, you go, you want to see more? And <coughs> the bonus features are pretty much all there. <laughs> if there. If there is a physical release, it's just going to be that stuff. With Netflix, they don't really put that front and center if it exists at all for stuff. But that's going to be it for this week's show. Thank you for joining me, and we'll be back soon with another Digital Noise.